Thank you for downloading this podcast from Grace Church Manchester. To listen to more or to get involved with church life, visit www.gracechurchmanchester.net. Good morning. Psalm 8 is a wonderful psalm. I was just telling Mike this morning, we could just spend a whole series just talking about Psalm 8, but we're not going to do that. We have one sermon on it, Um, but before we really get into the meat of the psalm itself, I have a question that, for you, that we'll be wrestling with as we bring ourselves to this text. It's a question of, who are you? Who are you? When you meet someone for the first time, how do we figure that out? Well, one, you probably find out their name. Uh, the second, what's the most often second question we often ask? What do you do? Who are you? What do you do? Uh, no, there's nothing wrong with asking people what they do, but I wonder if uh, maybe we're a little bit more than what we do. Our identities are probably a little bit more than what we do. And maybe the reason why we ask those things betrays a certain kind of uh, shallow view of identity that we have, that who we are equals our name plus what we do. I get it. In a normal beginning one-on-one conversation, we can't go very deeply into who we are, our essence and stuff, but I think there's something to that because that is a question we ask. So what do you do? Are you a student? Are you a full-time minister, a full-time dad? Are you a graphic designer? There's all sorts of things that we can do. But I think there's probably something more than that because especially here in Manchester, we don't often only describe ourselves as what we do. We also describe ourselves in what we love. Like there's a neighbor of mine, he's an accountant. He would not describe himself as an accountant first. He would describe himself as uh, an artist, a musician, who's into punk music and horror films. That's kind of like how he would define himself. Now that's not what he does, it's kind of like what he loves. But surely, what we do, what we love, is that it? Is our identity more than that? Surely it must be. But you know, I don't know if there's ever been a time in human history where we have been so free to define ourselves how we want to. We can be whatever we want, we've been told by Disney and other similar films. You can do what you want to do, just need to have passion or work hard like the Olympics. Anyone can be an Olympian. Maybe not me. <laughs> and when I think about my identity, I'm a husband, I'm a father, uh, I'm a son, I'm uh, a pastor, I'm all sorts of things. But if I limit my identity just to those things, it's kind of flimsy because those things can be lost. And what does that mean for who I am now? If I build my identity, the foundation of my identity, on something that can be lost, what good is that? And in a world so laden with possibilities and how to define ourselves, I wonder if we just find it a bit overwhelming. If we could be anything we want, that's just, just too many choices. Paralysis. So we're overwhelmed, but then also the things that we choose to build our relationships on are a bit flimsy. And when those things go away, say we define ourselves by relationships, sometimes they don't work out. Or if we define ourselves with, uh, in our families, sometimes there are disruptions that happen there. What happens when those disruptions come, when our finely curated identities are called into question? Well, that's where the Psalms come in. And that's where this Psalm is particularly good at telling us uh, and as we've been learning uh, through August, we've been delving into the Psalms, we've been learning that the, the Psalms not only speak to us, but they speak for us. And we need both of those things to, to be spoken to all parts of our lives. The Psalms invite us to reflect on who God is 
And this summertime is when things slow down just a tad before things pick up back in September. So we're using this as an opportunity to slow down a bit, reflect a little bit more, and see what, what is our walk with God really like. And that's why we're focusing here on the Psalms. And as we um, come together on Sundays to work with the Psalms, um, maybe a good possibility, hopefully there won't be any mic problems, so I'll walk over here, um, for you to use in your daily life, your daily walk with God, is one of these books. It's basically one day, they're not very long, one day on one part of a psalm. Uh, there's a part of a psalm, a reflection, and a prayer. It's really helpful stuff. Christine and I read it um, most nights. I would say every night, but that would make me sound more holy and a liar at the same time. So uh, we try to do it most nights together. It's uh, nine pounds. If you can't afford it, that's fine. Go ahead. and We want you to be in it with us as we go through it. In last, the last two weeks, Mike has taught from Psalms 1 and 2 about the importance of God's word and the, about the importance of God's kingdom. This week, we're all talking about our identity. Because I think if we're really honest, we have trouble knowing who we are. And the freedom we have to figure out for ourselves is paralyzing. And the thing is, we actually can't really choose those things well. Because what if we make the wrong, like, the wrong decision? What if I choose tomorrow to be an Olympian and all my identity is on that? That doesn't work out, maybe. The sheer amount of choice is overwhelming. And the idea of trying to find yourself, which is something that we hear off, this idea is, I wonder if it's just another way of saying I'm lost. And we're called to more than this. Well, Psalm 8 tells us who we are. That's quite a grand picture about who we are. It also tells us who God is. And in these nine verses, we see that who God is and who we are interconnected. And the two have to connect to each other. Our true identity can only be found in the relationship that we have with our creator, with God. And so we're going to start with that first. We're going to first start with who God is. Then we're going to talk about God's connection to us. And then, and only then, will we be able to discover who we are. So who God is, God's connection to us, and who we are. But we'll first start here with who God is. The beginning and ending of this psalm have the same words. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. We got to sing it previously. Now when something is repeated, especially in something that's as short as nine verses, you probably think that might be a little bit important. And it is. It's important. Repetition shows this is what we're going to be focusing in on. So the bookends tell us right from the start this is about God. This psalm is about who he is. This is the Lord. And Mike talked about what the Lord, you have it um, in your Bibles in front of you, small caps with that. That's the divinely revealed name, Yahweh. This is the, the most intimate name God has given himself uh, for us to know him by. It's something that would be treated with reverence, as Mike taught last week. So this is the Lord, Yahweh. But then we immediately get our Lord. So this Lord, this magnificent Lord that we ought to treat with reverence is also immediately defined as our Lord. There's a relational connection right from the beginning. It's an integrated connection between humanity and God. Yahweh isn't just the Lord, he's our Lord. And this Lord is majestic. It says, uh, how majestic is your name in all the earth? You have set your glory in the heavens. Uh, maybe another way to put this is set your glory above the heavens. But before we even get to the heavens, uh, I just want to spend a second on what glory is. So uh, what, first of all, what is glory? Because that's kind of maybe an abstract thing. We sing about it. We use the words all to all God's glory. And the man's chief end is to glorify God. We have all these things where we use the word glory. 
But what does that actually mean? Well, glory is God's revealed nature of himself to us. So if you, maybe a metaphor would be, if you picture um, just a room with nothing in it but a lamp, a very bright lamp, and that lamp is on, the, the room will be filled with the glory of the lamp. The light that fills the room is, is that lamp's glory, but it's not the lamp itself. Does that make sense? So this filling thing that comes from the thing itself. That's like God's glory. So God's glory isn't God himself, but it's the, it's the um, overflow of who he is as he reveals himself to us. And so for God's glory, it's not just one room. It's the millions of rooms that this universe holds is filled with God's glory, with who he is as he's revealing himself to us. And this glory is set in the heavens or above the heavens. There's an interesting, interesting Old Testament way of speaking that they saw creation as like this thing and God's glory was so big it couldn't even be contained in this thing. It's above creation. It's super creation. It can't even be contained in the known world. That's how huge and amazing and magnificent God's glory is. That's what majesty means. It's something that can't be contained, even in creation itself. So our Lord is majestic above everything else, of everything we could know and everything that we don't know. And this glory, the next couple of verses, the next kind of images in this psalm, is displayed in a couple of ways. One is upside down in a way that's surprising, and the second is a way that uh, is just kind of overwhelming and right side up. So this glory first here, this hit, hit the upside down version of it, that God, whose glory cannot be contained in creation, uses what in verse 2? Children and infants as instruments of his power. Through the praise of children and infants, you have established a stronghold against your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. If we could imagine the most helpless of humans, we would pick the littlest ones. I mean, they can't begin to care for themselves, let alone others. I mean, Colin has this little baby doll. He throws that thing around like, Nothing. He's not caring for that baby. He can't even begin to care for that baby. He can't even begin to care for himself. And yet those helpless beings are the particular ones that God is choosing to display his power through. That's upside down. That's not something we would expect right off the bat. So we have that little helpless picture of a baby who can't even, you know, wipe their own nappies up. And then we have the enemies of God, the strongholds against God, the, the foes, the avengers, people taking revenge into their own hands. I have the images because a big, burly, bouncer kind of guy. Just, that's, the, that's the enemy that's out there. Especially when compared to the children. Like how, how funny of a, of a situation it is. Surely the big bouncer guy will be able to take care of this child. And yet that's not the case. Because where do these helpless beings get their power? Through the praises. Through them praising God. Through the praises to the Lord. The victory doesn't go to those who might seem strong. It goes to those who are depending on God and praising him. Helpless children. Now this is not what we would normally expect. And what this proves is only this all-powerful God can use something as helpless as these children as the, and these infants against people who are enemies of God. It just illustrates God's power in a way that's surprising and kind of throws us back a bit. So that's an upside-down image of glory. Um, what we have in the next verse, in verse 3, is more of a right-side-up image of what God's glory is about. An overwhelming glory, whose majesty is not contained in creation. And what we get here is a bit of the wonder of creation. God is so big, he's so powerful, that the heavens, the stars, the moons, are the works of his fingers, just kind of flicking things. Celestial bodies just kind of flicked there. 
often to describe strength, the writers of the Bible will use like a strong arm. Uh, you think of someone like Samson who's got strong arms. Ah, oh, that's like an image of God's power or God's mighty arm, his mighty hand. This is his fingers. We're not very strong in our fingers. I mean, just think of the number of stars that you see, even here in Manchester, which, you know, we have a little bit of light pollution, but you can still see a lot of stars. Multiply that by the number of galaxies there are, and we're discovering more and more of these every day. They're just little flicks. It's overwhelming. Have you ever seen a star up close, like through an amazing kind of telescope? It's insane looking. It's crazy. Here's a, an image of uh, the Milky Way reflected onto the world's largest um, salt flat in the world. It's in South America. That is overwhelming. And yet this is just one galaxy. Mere flicks of the Lord's finger. Looking to the stars is often used in the Bible to refer to something that's incomprehensible or beyond number or overwhelming. And that's exactly what this is. We live in a place so vast, it's incomprehensible. We can't really contain it all in our heads. And yet God just put it together almost willy-nilly. So God makes his glory known in all ways, from upside down to right side up. The cry of the child and the overwhelming reality of nature both tell us that power and glory and strength does not reside in man. Look how small that man looks like standing there. All glory and power and strength does not reside in man. The image of the infant's mouth, that's also a symbol of, of dependence. How else does an infant get nourishment? Through the mouth. We, we literally have to feed them with a bottle. It's also an hour of dependence on our Lord where we see strength. So the question isn't, are we strong? It's, are we depending on someone who's strong? The one who set the stars in the sky. Now this sounds great, but it really does go against every grain of our being because everything else tells us in this world that we are the kings and we can do whatever we want and we are the people in charge. But the reality is it's just not true. We think strength is found in us, and because we believe that lie, our lives consist of trying to do more things or trying to do things better, or when those things don't, don't work out, we are devastated. But the truth is, we just, we just can't live the way the world tells us to. And so Psalm 8 is telling us that true power comes from understanding our true identity. We are like helpless children, depending on the Father and praising him. And we trust in this Father, the one who controls the heavens, to work out plans in ways that only he can do. Ways that we can't even begin to understand. So that's God, who God is. We just got a brief blimp, uh, glimpse into who God is before the psalmist moves right into God's connection to us. And the intention of bringing up this kind of glorious scene of God's majesty is almost to juxtapose our smallness and God's magnificence, the glaring gap between God and us. And even though there is, uh, maybe gap isn't even the best word, because even though there is a massive difference, it's not a disconnection. There's not a, um, a, a, a gulf that we can't uh, be connected to. So th though God is so big and so powerful, it doesn't mean he's inaccessible, that he's too far out there for us to know. It's quite the opposite, because it says, what is mankind that you were mindful of them, human beings that you care for them? There's that question of questions, right, in, in, uh, in verse 4. What is mankind? What is man? That's a question we often hear. Who are we? What are, what, what are we to be made? What are we, how are we to be seen? What is man that you care for him? We would expect 
first to be like, oh, man is so lowly and so minuscule. That's not where it goes. It says God cares for us. He's mindful of us. He says he's mindful. Now, being mindful has to do with compassion, of being purposeful and remembering. I don't know if it's a saying here, but I know in the U.S. it's common for parents to say, mind your manners. Be mindful of your manners. Now, that doesn't mean that the parent wants the child to be thinking of their manners. It means it wants the child to be following through, be thoughtful, be purposeful in how they're interacting with others. The same kind of mindfulness, this is the same kind of mindfulness God has for us. It, it leads to action. God remembers his relationship with his children even when we don't. Caring is another thing about attention and action as well. The word care is something we hear often. A lot of people want to care. We want to care for everybody. Organizations care about this and they care about that. It's really easy for it to be a shallow, kind of surfacey level kind of care. Because true caring is hard. It's, it, it means your life is disrupted. It means you are doing things in a way at a cost to yourself that other people get benefit from and you don't get any kind of perceivable, if that's a word, benefit. It's hard to do. And I know when I avoid caring for others, it's because I don't kind of want to be involved in a mess. I want my life to be easily compartmentalized. It's a selfishness. But thankfully, God is not selfish. He doesn't remove himself from our messes. He steps in. He cares for us. He knows you, messes and all, more than you actually know your own. And he sacrifices a part of himself for a relationship with you. He sacrifices son. Jesus sacrificed his very life. That's a mindfulness and a care for us that we can only begin to understand. It's concentrated, deep concern that leads to action. So God's connection to us is one of attention and care. And this might be hard for us to believe because we don't often feel it or we don't at least always feel it. But just because we don't see something doesn't mean it's not there. And this is true when uh, there's that lone Lego laid out on the floor at night kind of like a bear trap for the unsuspecting parent. It's dark, you're going to get a drink. Of course you step on that Lego. You didn't know that Lego was there, but now you see the proof, and you can feel the proof because you're saying words you wish you hadn't said before. So there's that. I also remember uh, Matt and Sophie telling us a story um, uh, about one time. They were, uh, it was the middle of the night, and it was dark, they were looking for a drink, and they walk downstairs, and they step on something. It feels like squishy. Has that ever happened to you? You're barefoot. Ah, oh, why did I put my slippers on? They stepped on a slug. It's kind of like all slug pieces everywhere. It's kind of gross. Now, you may not be able to see the Lego first or see the slug, but that doesn't mean that they're not there. You feel its effect. There's proof that it's there, even if you've never even seen the Lego, the Lego and you probably will never see that slug again. But there's the proof of it existing in the, in the way that's interacting with us. So maybe God caring for you is hard to understand, and maybe the idea of stepping on a slug is not the best example of God caring for us, but I think you might get the idea. That for people who are Christians, and for people who aren't Christians yet, we have all had this experience, feeling that God is not there. That's true of everybody who's ever existed. Nobody has ever felt that God has been there completely all the time, except for Jesus. So we've all had that experience. We just don't feel him. We, we might feel alone or there's some kind of experience that we're reaching for and we're just not quite getting it. But thankfully, our feelings are not king. Our feelings have never set stars in the sky. Our experiences have never silenced our foes. So what do we do when we experience this feeling of divine absenteeism? Well, I have four very unhelpful ideas first. These are very unhelpful things that we can do. First, 
um, we can focus even more on our own thoughts and feelings by themselves. So it comes like a good cesspool for us to get involved in and just kind of think about it and kind of churn over inwardly. That's an unhelpful thing. The second unhelpful thing is to not talk to anyone about it. Um, that's a very unhelpful thing to do if you want to not help yourself. Definitely do number two. Uh, number three, we can just push it away. Pretend like those feelings don't exist and just attempt to keep calm and carry on and just stiff up your lip and all that. Um, pretend like we're not actually feeling those things and we, like, parts of our hearts will get seared and we'll just kind of move on. And the last one is to not read what God has to say about himself. These are all very unhelpful things to do, um, but these are also the things that we go to first, aren't they? When we have those feelings, we kind of like, oh, look, we, we like struggle over them, and we're afraid to talk to others about them, because what will they think about us? So we just kind of stay inwardly, and um, we don't actually really contend with what God has to say about it, and we just push it away, and we become a little less than we were before. That is not how we are called to live. That, is, that dehumanizes ourselves. So what are maybe some helpful things? Well, here's three possibly helpful things uh, that we can do instead. First, when we have doubts, bring them to others. Let's doubt in community. We talk about what we believe in community through life groups, but hopefully also in these groups, we're talking about where we're struggling to believe those things. Let's bring our doubts together to others, not keep them within. The second thing is to be suspicious about those doubts. If we're suspicious about what God says about himself, how come we don't apply that same suspicion to our own doubts, to our own thoughts? We should be suspicious about ourselves in a similar kind of way. And the third is to see what God has to say about those doubts. What is God actually saying about what we're feeling and how do we reconcile the two? That's what the Psalms are all about. Another good reason to, to take a look at a book like that. So bring, it, bring our doubts together to other people. Be suspicious about them in, in, inwardly and see what God has to say. I think that um, some of those things might be helpful because God has called us to walk with him together as a people, not individually. And let's continue to do that as we grow as a church, as we grow as life groups, as we grow as individuals. Um, and well, let's continue to do that as we continue to walk through this psalm. So we talked about who God is. Uh, we talked about his connection to us. And now, and only now, are we going to talk about who we are. And so given the previous verses, uh, which I think the order itself is instructive, who God is, we can't really know ourselves without first knowing who God is. We can't really know ourselves without knowing how that God is connected to us. And so now we find our identity. Now one would expect verse 5, when it actually begins to talk about who we are, to talk about how lowly we humans are, how unworthy and, and dark and messed up we are. And fair enough, that, there's parts of that that's true, right? But that's not where the psalmist in this psalm goes. He says the opposite. He says we are the pinnacle of creation. You've made us a little lower than the angels. You might even have a footnote that says made us a little lower than God. Maybe the best way actually to, to um, understand this phrase is you've made us a little lower than the heavenly beings and the beings that operate in heaven. And it says, not only that, it says we are crowned. God has crowned us. He's crowned us with glory, with honor. We are royal in some sense, humanity is. And interestingly, he crowns us with glory and honors. This is something we've already brought up before. The Lord, whose glory the earth cannot contain, has chosen to crown us with glory. Mind-boggling. He has given every human dignity 
given every human glory, given every human honor. Now, it might be a little strange to think that we have been given glory. It's God who's supposed to get the glory, isn't it? But yet we find he's given us a kind of glory. Now, this is not ultimate glory. It's a kind of glory that Psalmist unpacks as we go through the verses. It's a derivative glory. It's a glory that allows us to rule over creation, plants and animals and things like that, to be kind of um, many uh, kind of pseudo-lords here on earth. You know, if this reminds you a little bit of the creation story, you'd be on the right track. And it's interesting, in verses 6 through 8, actually reverses the order of creation in Genesis 1. And so, to, in order to understand the psalm, we have to understand a little bit of the creation story that we see in Genesis 1. Um, specifically, this verse in Genesis 1, 28, that I'll, I'll just read for you. We're not going to turn to there. When God created us, man and, and woman, he blessed us first. And then, in that blessing, he says, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and every living creature that moves on the ground. No other thing that God created was given this task. It's a very specific to us kind of thing. There's something special, something distinct about mankind's glory, mankind's identity. And this is what it means to be made in the image of God compared to in the image of something else. And if we thought the praises of children and infants was upside down, this is upside down. We're crowned with this kind of glory? God has given all humans dignity. And if we're going to talk about identity, this is a foundational form of, of who we are. This is an identity that has been bestowed upon us. He's given us glory. This is part of our identity, who we are as humans. He has given us honor. This is part of our identity, who we are. It's given from God. It's bestowed upon us from him. Now, let's assume all this is true. We have dignity, we have glory, we have honor. This is not innate within us because this is God doing the crown. We aren't crowning ourselves with glory and honor because we don't have that within us. God himself who has the glory has chosen to crown us with glory and honor. And so if that's true, how can we understand who we are if we don't understand who God is? If our foundational identity has to do with this honor and glory that doesn't come from within us, do you see how important it is for us to understand who God is first before we can understand who we are? Some of essentially who we are doesn't come from us. It comes from God. So we have to know who God is. We can't understand ourselves by ourselves. We're just not made that way. So if we don't know God, we will not really truly know ourselves. We'll be constantly lost trying to find ourselves in all these other places. We don't need to find ourselves full stop. We need to find ourselves in God. Then and only then can we learn who we truly are. So Psalm 8 teaches us about who we are, therefore giving us a purpose for how we ought to live. How can we live a fulfilled life if we're not truly embracing who we are? Surely we have all had jobs we feel like didn't really connect with our essence. We didn't really jive with it. And so it was hard to do. It wasn't as enjoyable to do. And maybe some of us have had jobs where we just enjoy doing it. We, would do, we love doing it so much, it's like a joy to even get paid to do that thing. Or maybe we're involved in some kind of a, like hobby or something like that. You just love to do because it feels it really connects with who you are. You see how important it is for the things that we do to connect with our identity, with who we are. So this psalm is an invitation. It's an invitation to human flourishing, understanding our identity first, and then our role and what we do second. It's a grace that God allows us to be a part of his care of the world, seeking to advance his kingdom in the ways that he lays out. So the question is, is 
about Christianity? Is, is, it, is Christianity ultimately about us? Or is Christianity ultimately about God? Of course, the answer is yes, you get to say. The psalm teaches us that Christianity is about God and also about us. It's about the relationship between the two. And that's why people say Christianity is about a relationship. Without two parties, no relationship can exist. That's fundamentally what the faith is about. And the more we are connected to how we are truly made, made by God, bestowed with this royal identity, the more we can be truly human, the more we can embrace more of our humanity, the more we can flourish. And we flourish when we're living out of our true identity. We wither when we don't. And the truth is, we become what we listen to because there are all sorts of other narratives out there telling us this is who we are. I mean, we talked about some like Disneyification a little bit. Um, in your life, what are you listening to? Because we become what we listen to. We become what we're attuned to. There's a, um, if I get a bit nerdy on you for a second, uh, there's this technical musical phenomenon called sympathetic resonance. Basically, it's when when one uh, thing vibrates and creates sound. Another thing, um, if it's attuned to a similar kind of frequency, can uh, vibrate and create sound as well. Uh, that sounds a little bit weird, but say if, I was to, if we had a real piano, um, you could open up the piano and sing a note into the piano, and some strings would actually vibrate sympathetically, like in response to your voice being sung into it. It sounds weird. Actually, it literally sounds weird when you do it. But it's kind of a cool thing that somehow one voice can cause one thing that was previously silent to respond and actually come alive in some ways, literally come alive. The more I sing into that piano, the more the strings respond. The louder I sing, the louder the strings respond. Now a string that never makes a sound is useless. Why would it even exist? What's the point for it to be there? A string is there to be part of music, to be part of something bigger. A string that resounds is one that lives up to its stringness. It's embracing its, its, its identity as that little string. And we as humans begin as silent strings, and God speaks into that silence. He makes us, the strings, come alive. That makes us the harmonics of God's voice, responding to how God is speaking to us. We should have God's voice sounding through us. And that means we don't become robots because we still maintain our, our own identity as a string. The thing is, we move from being silent to being loud, to, being, to resounding, to, to being alive. We maintain our identity. In fact, we gain our identity through God singing through us. A piano string is meant to be part of the music. We ought to be like that open, resounding string, responding to God's song, not to the other songs that we hear in our culture. Because there are so many other things out there begging us to respond. And the sheer amount of adverts that our eyes are like subjected to every day is just proof of that. We are marketed to more than ever. So there are so many things out there that in order to truly grasp who we are, we need to listen to God's song about us for the voice that has created us and bestowed us upon with, with this kind of identity. What you're listening to, does it re reflect Psalm 8? Or does it reflect something else? The question for us is, what is God, the bestower of our identity, whispering to you? Do we make room for his voice? Are we listening?
Or have we responded? So in speaking of our identity, Psalm 8 has a list and in this psalm here. It says we're rulers over sheep, oxen, beasts of the field, fish, all sorts of things. And then it has this very curious piece in verse 6. It says, you put everything under their feet. Talking about humans. You put everything under their feet. Now this is a hopeful psalm to be sure, but is David going too far here? Everything under their feet means everything in complete dominion, complete domination, that we are in control over everything. But we know we're not always in control over everything. I don't always feel victorious. We're not always in control of creation, let alone ourselves. We still experience pain, longing, suffering, and I still see the fruitless work of my hands. My labor is sometimes still done in vain. What are we to make of this? Is it just kind of pie in the sky? Not everything is under our feet. Often we end up as footstools for other things, other sins, other pains, shortcomings. Now our identity should be glorious, but the reality is we actually don't have the capacity to reach for it on our own. We saw a small picture of the upside-down glory of God in verse 2, the children and, and the big looming foes. But the answer to this question of verse 6 is the most upside-down story that has ever existed and ever will exist. And Hebrews 2, we're not going to turn to Hebrews, but Hebrews 2 interprets Psalm 8 for us. Hebrews is in the New Testament and interprets this Old Testament book for us by placing not us at the center of this psalm, but Jesus. Saying this psalm is actually first true about Jesus. And that's how we can see it be true about ourselves. Jesus came to earth in the form of a lowly servant. God himself in the form of a human, meaning he was born a tiny, helpless baby. And in his cry, we see the beginning of the end for God's enemies. He was crowned with glory and honor, though not widely recognized during his earthly ministry. And God has placed everything under Jesus' feet and has now appointed Jesus to be head over everything. So that means we cannot understand who we are apart from who God is and what he's done for us. Because if we don't understand who we are from what God has done for us, we're just going to be, end up saying this the way this can be true. But it can be true. God has made it true. God is magnificent, glorious, all-powerful, and mindful of us. The Father cares so much that he sent his own Son to be humbled even to the point of dying for us so that we could be included in God's family so that we could rightly understand our identity, so we could live in the light of who God is and what he's done for us. So we find our identity is found in the identity of God. Jesus is the one who saves us from those flimsy identities, those things that we're trying to grasp for, and he bestows upon us, because of what he's done, a new royal identity. Gives us our true identity. Because the Jesus who came before us was completely obedient, to, put to God's voice in his life. He was the string that resounded completely obediently to God's song through his life, his death, and resurrection. We can now take part in God's plan. We can now be part of verse 6. Because we're Jesus' brothers and sisters, we can be a part of everything. Uh, we can be part of, of seeing everything under our feet. Because this Jesus made the relationship possible between us and this glorious God. This God who is so vast and so big and so above us can now be the God who is near at great cost to himself. That's what mindfulness and care from God looks like. And the structure of this psalm teaches us about our identity. Though we're prominent and in the middle, 
The book ends again, our God. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. And so we got that in verse 1. But now, after going through the journey of the previous eight verses, verse 9 becomes something else. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. We've understood a little bit more of his majesty. We've understood a little bit more of how much he cares for us, how much he, more he's mindful of us. And so we're, even though we're saying the same words, we sing it now with, with a vigor, with a, with a passion, with an understanding we didn't have before. And that's why I want uh, the band to come up. Uh, normally, uh, actually, you can come up while I'm speaking here. Normally, right at the end of a sermon, we pray in a response to, to what God has done for us. But I want our prayer to be found in a song. Because what we learn here in verse 2, through the praises of his children and his infants, that's, what God, um, that's how God establishes his power. And so us, as responding to what we've learned and what we've even previously sang, we're going to respond in a song. Verse 1 sings of God's glory and who God is. And we've learned about the identity of God and of ourselves. Now we can really feel like we understand this a bit more. We can really sing about the glory of God and who he is, the one who flicks those stars into the sky. And as we continue to sing God's song during the week, because this isn't just something that we do on Sunday, and this song ought to be a metaphor for us. As we sing this song throughout the week, we turn away from all the other imposter melodies that are out there, seeking and vying for our attention, trying to get a little piece of us. We turn away from those, and we sing God's song. The power of God is found in the praises of his people, rightly understanding our identity before a glorious God. Let's all stand and sing together as new creations found in God. Thank you for downloading this podcast from Grace Church Manchester. To listen to more or to get involved with church life, visit www.gracechurchmanchester.net.